Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. One Friday morning in 1991, Nikki Zinger and her boyfriend Daniel Risher decided to drive down to Shreveport, Louisiana for the day. The couple were both in their 20s, and they lived in Magnolia, Arkansas. Daniel was in a band, and he needed to take his guitar amp to a repair shop in Shreveport, about an hour and a half away. They stopped off to pick up some magazines at the home of Nikki's mother, Linda Holly. Linda was already at work, so Nikki left her a note and the two set off. When they got back that night, they drove past Linda's trailer. Didn't even think of myself because it was a little late. I figured she was in the bed because when we went by the house, the house was dark, but I thought the car was in the front yard. The next day, Saturday, Nikki called her mother over and over, but was unable to reach her. On Sunday, Nikki and Daniel drove over to Linda's house, and when they got there, cops were everywhere. So when we pulled up and I asked what was wrong, and when they told me that my mom was dead, I didn't understand why, because it just didn't make any sense. She couldn't be dead because she wasn't dead when I left. Linda Holly had been viciously murdered, stabbed and bludgeoned to death. And Nikki and Daniel were soon the primary suspects. My name is Nikki Zanger and I've been locked up for 31 years for a crime I have not committed. From Lava for Good, this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Nikki Zinger. To accept this free call, press 1 to refuse the thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. Hi, Nikki. Are we ready? Yeah. I'm here. It's Maggie. Hey. We really need to talk and catch up on something. Us, Nikki? Yeah, we do. But let's get this interview, okay? And then we'll catch up because we don't want to we don't want to miss this. Nikki Zinger has been incarcerated at the McPherson unit in Newport, Arkansas, since 1992. And Nikki and I have been friends since I first covered her case in 2020 for my podcast on Justin Unsolved. Nikki's story has haunted me since then. And after listening to this episode, I think you will hear why. All right, Nikki, so let's start at the beginning. Can you tell me about growing up? I know you were born in Chicago, but you moved to Arkansas. My mom left my dad when I was just a baby. I mean, we went to live with my grandmother who lived in Magnolia at the time. Nikki Zinger was born in 1963. After they moved to Magnolia, her mother, Linda Holly, raised Nikki on her own. My dad was never uh, a part of my life because he was always drinking and drugging. He was mentally and physically abusive to both. As I got older, he, he tried to uh, come see me a few, but he was always drunk. And my mother asked him, 
can you not come see your only child sober? Because he was pushing me one day, and he pushed me out of the, the, uh, the swing, and he just left me there. Linda was a nurse and worked as a director with the health department. But Nikki says she could have done more with her life. She was smart enough to be a doctor. She just didn't, I, I think, because of me, because of my problem. I was born with a, a club foot and a foot drop, and I was born um, paralyzed and a stroke in the brain. And that meant that Nikki needed constant care. I mean, I'm in the hospital for like three, four months with my foot. I'm almost upside down because I got to have pins in my knee, pins in all my toes and a cast, mm. and I got to have upside down so I won't get a blood clot. So you really can't do anything. I missed a lot of the child, my childhood being in the hospital. Even when she was home in between operations, Nikki had to wear a cast day and night. She rarely went to school, so Linda homeschooled her. I had no friends because I had to go every other year for so many years. If you're friends with me one year and I'm out the next year, you're not going to keep, you know, you're, you're, you're a child. So you're not going to keep trying to be my friend. So I really never did get close to anybody because I was never in school. So tell me about growing up with your mom. You guys really were each other's people. She was kind of your best friend. She took care of you when you were having all your health problems. So tell me about that. She was my, she was my playmate. She was my everything. I didn't know any other way. I, I mean, uh, I couldn't work. So, I, you know, I stayed home and did the little things, you know what I'm saying? We just got to doing everything. If we went to the Sonic or went to the drive, whatever drive through. We sit in the parking lot sometime and just have a picnic and just watch everybody. If me and my mother traveled, it was just me and my mother. She'd either lay in the bed and play video games with me or the TV or the movies or just outside playing, you know what I'm saying? And that was just happy with me. Nikki and her mom did everything together. They were happy in each other's company, but still, Linda wanted more for her daughter. Have a good career, have a good life, not to worry about things. You know what I'm saying? She didn't want me to have to work hard like she did. She didn't want me to have to worry about the things that she worried about or the man that she had picked, like my father. As a teenager, Nikki was interested in boys. She was curious about dating, but she wasn't quite ready to strike out on her own. To be honest with you, making my mother... Making my mom go dragging so we could look at boys. Oh. She would take me to the Sonic and we would look, just look, you know what I'm saying? Just drive around and I don't know. Wait, so you did I actually never knew this. So you and mom would go look for boys together? Yeah, just go look. I mean, I, I didn't date a lot because um, I always was, was so shy because of. The scars on my leg, or because one leg was bigger than the other. So my mom said, Well, let's just do this then. Then in her early 20s, Nikki did meet someone. When they got married, she thought Larry would take care of her, but that's not how it turned out. I didn't know a lot of things about Larry until after I got married. Dad, he drank a lot. I knew he drank some, but I didn't know that he had drank that bad. And he would want to leave and come in late at 2 o'clock in the morning. I said, we can't do that. This is my mom's house. So he, when he did leave, he would try to bang on the door, and my mother wouldn't let him in. And it just got out of hand, and got he was getting real verbal abusive and stuff like that. And I told him, so I just, just got a divorce. I don't ever regret it. How long were you married for? <laughs> Not even six months. With Larry out of the picture, Nikki and her mom went back to their quiet life together. By now, they had sold her grandparents' house and moved into a new place, a brand-new double-wide trailer. They had two bathrooms, two bedrooms, a living room, a TV room, and then the master bedroom had its own bathroom, own TV room, like a little apartment. Linda continued with her job at the health center, and Nikki pitched in by babysitting and working at a nursery when she wasn't watching TV or listening to her favorite music. 
So Nikki, I know that you in your past maybe still are a bit of a rocker. What kind of music did you used to like? Hey, me? Yeah, you. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like ACDC or Van Halen or uh, Journey. That was back when I was uh, a little bit of a young person. <laughs> And then, when Linda was 45, something happened that would upset the balance of their life together. Linda struggled with how to tell her daughter the devastating news. And I happened to come home early, and I was like, well, why is the paper quarter sitting on my bed? So I turned it on, and it was her talking. That's when she told me that she had cancer. I was devastated. Because I had to know how to act and, and to deal with the feelings because cancer makes you go through so much. Their lifetime roles were reversed, and Nikki became her mother's caretaker. What kinds of caretaking things did you have to do for her? Like make the bed or cook. We went and got her a wig. We learned how to eat better because she had to change the way she ate to get the vitamins that the chemotherapy and the radiation was taken out of her, so we had bought a steamer, so I learned to steam the vegetables that she liked. So I, I just cooked, and she still worked because she wanted to. Because if she didn't, she said she would drive her crazy. So when she come in, I would fix her bath, have her dinner ready, and we would just watch TV. Or whatever, she, if she wanted to go outside and walk some, we would go out there and walk down the road because we lived in the country anyway. It was hard for Nikki to watch her mom going through chemotherapy. I don't know if the cure is worse than having cancer because, you know, I'd watch my mom go through so much spinal tap, hair coming out, uh, losing one of her breasts, which really upset her. It's very, very hard. Nikki also had to process the fact that the worst might happen, that she might lose her mother, her best friend. Because by this time, she had been through chemotherapy and radiation twice. Sometimes she would feel better and sometimes she wouldn't. I just couldn't think about this being the end of my mom because I don't have any family. This is only this has been my only family my whole life. I just couldn't think of my life just being out there by myself, you know? And then when she was in her mid-20s, someone new came into Nikki's life. She had met a few people around the area, and one day, one of the girls invited her to a party. I told my mom about it, and she said, well, it's not going to hurt. You might meet somebody, you know what I'm saying? So I go, and there was Daniel. Nikki was 26, and Daniel Risher was four years younger. She was attracted to him right away. His hair, was it looked like a beetle haircut when I first met him. Dark brown and straight. He had big puppy dog brown eyes. He was kind of shy like me. He was just, I don't know, just different from everybody. One day not long after that, to Nikki's surprise, Daniel showed up at their trailer. Linda was on her way to work. My mom said, well, who is this? And I introduced and everything. She was talking about she didn't want to leave me. And he said, well, how about if I just come up and keep her company during the day while you're at work? And that's what he did. And that's where it started. What stood out to you about him? <laughs> he wasn't like my ex-husband. It, it was, it was, it was sweet because it was like a slow build. That makes sense to you? Mm-hmm. It was just, he helped with everything. It was just, it was just so natural. Not only that, Daniel was into rock music, like Nikki. Music was one of the things they bonded over. You know, he played the guitar, and he had his own little personal band, and he was good at it. And I thought that was kind of neat to have a boyfriend that played the band. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like not, not necessarily a prestige or whatever you want to say, but it was kind of neat. Before long, Nikki and Daniel were inseparable. They went back and forth between their homes staying some nights at Linda's place and others with Daniel's parents, Albert and Rachel. At first, Nikki says Rachel wasn't sure how she felt about her son's new girlfriend. When she got to know me, things changed because, you know, she didn't think I was trying to 
take advantage of her son or anything else. She was all, I was really nice because I helped with the dishes and I helped cook when we all like down there. I helped with everything that she did. Did your mom like him? I think so. Her and Daniel really got along. She had asked that, you know, what I thought about maybe us going on vacation one time, all of us together. Oh, where would you have gone? Well, my mom, she was a very history buff. And we went to Mississippi together and seen the old battlefields. And uh, she wanted to go to, to the Alamo and see all the stuff in Texas. As things progressed with me and him, we talked about maybe getting married one day, maybe starting a family. One Friday morning, about a year and a half into their relationship, Daniel needed to take his guitar amp to a repair shop in Shreveport. It was about an hour and a half away, and Nikki decided to go along for the ride and make a day of it. On their way out, they stopped by Linda's to pick up a few magazines for the drive. Linda was already at work. I left her a note on the bar to tell her that we were going to Shreveport. It was still daytime when we got there. Toby went to the amp place, and it said it was closed for, for lunch. So we went to the mall, and he decided he was hungry, so we went and ate at a sandwich place. And he bought me some perfume, a couple bottles of perfume. They walked around the mall for a bit, then went back to the shop to drop off Daniel's amp. As it was starting to get dark, they headed back to Magnolia, arriving in the late evening. I don't know what time it was exactly. We stopped by Easy Mart. We had dinner at Sonic. And we went home. On the way, they drove past Linda's house. Didn't think my sophomore because it was a little late. I figured she was in the bed. I mean, because when we went by the house, the house was dark, but I thought the car was in the front yard. The next day, Saturday, Nikki called her mom and left multiple messages. But that's when she usually goes to the store. That's her day. She goes to the grocery store, to the farmer's market, Kmart. It's just her day to do all that. And I didn't think of anything. So, John, can you introduce yourself for listeners? Sure. My name is John Harden. I'm a private investigator. And for 10 years, I ran the nonprofit Proclaim Justice. Can you walk us through what happened back on March 8th, 1991. What do we know that happened, basically? What we know happened is on Friday, March 8th at, you know, 4.35 o'clock, something like that, Linda Holly was seen at her mailbox by her neighbor, Kara Lee Davis. She was in her scrubs. She was checking her mail. They had a brief conversation about, man, maybe we'll go to the store together tomorrow, do a little shopping tomorrow. And that's the last sighting that we know for sure of Linda Holly alive. That's on Friday afternoon. You fast forward to Sunday and Kara Lee Davis, the neighbor, was concerned because she had left a couple of messages for Linda that were not returned, but her car was still there. So she, Kara becomes concerned. She calls her friend Jan Terrell, who is also Linda, Linda Holly's friend, and they call a police officer who they knew named Buddy Height. The three of them go over. Buddy enters enough to see that there's a bad scene going on there, and he calls the police officers who are on duty. So once the police arrive on the scene, what was the investigation like? The first couple of officers, they don't know what they're walking into. So they go through the back utility room door of the trailer and they're walking through broken glass. They're walking through blood and you can't blame them. They've got their weapons drawn. They don't know if somebody's still in that trailer or not. They go in, they find Linda dead. It was multiple stab wounds, 12 stab wounds, as well as blunt force trauma, some evidence of some strangulation as well. John says that the investigation was a mess from the beginning. That crime scene was not secured at all. There were very quickly multiple people, multiple officers, kind of all over the place there, going in and out of the trailer. It was sort of the first thing that went wrong with this investigation. So you guys, on Sunday, you're calling her. She's not answering. So at what point do you go over to the house? I guess about lunch, maybe, maybe a little after lunch. We come around the corner, and there was a whole bunch of 
cars in the yard. And so when we pulled up, everybody was coming out from behind my house, and I asked what was wrong. And when they told me that, I, that my mom was dead, I just remember thinking that they're lying. So I run around behind the house, and they caught me. And told me that I told me that I, I I couldn't I couldn't go around there, and by this time I was crying, mm-hmm. and I didn't understand why because it just didn't make any sense that they're telling me that my mom was dead and she couldn't be dead because she wasn't dead when I left. So I just no. That's when I just laid on the grass and I couldn't do nothing because it was just. My whole life was gone. I have no life now. I didn't have nothing no more. Who would do something like this? I mean, I just didn't know anybody didn't like my mom like that. You know what I'm saying? But I still don't know. I know I didn't. Why would I take my life away from me? Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. You can listen to this and all the Lava for Good podcasts one week early and ad-free by subscribing to Lava for Good Plus on Apple Podcasts. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Within days of finding out her mother had been murdered, Nikki was told that she had to leave their home. Nobody was paying for it anymore. We had like 10, 15 days to get everything out of the house. So me and Daniel and my friend Debbie went up there and we would try to clean it up some during the day and get the things out that I wanted to keep. We would do it to the day because I couldn't couldn't do in there at nighttime. It stressed me out too bad, and I had nightmares from it. The day after Linda was found murdered, Daniel and Nikki were allowed to go into the home unsupervised. They're cleaning all this stuff up from the murder. Before the crime scene folks got there, before the state crime lab arrived, three days before the state crime lab arrived. Nikki says that at one point, officers asked her if there was anything missing from the house. We told him what was missing. Her gun was missing, hammer was missing, money was missing, jewelry was missing, and they did not one thing about any of that. 
As it turns out, the detectives were concerned about something else entirely. They weren't looking for valuables that were missing or anything like that. Officers testified at trial that immediately, once they found Linda Holly murdered in her home, they immediately started looking for insurance and other important papers. Linda's two life insurance policies, which added up to $90,000. And they all four said that there were all these papers on the floor and, and scattered about, and Nikki was gathering papers and putting them in this box. The day after Linda was murdered, they take them to Daniel's house. At this point, the investigation had already begun to turn towards Nikki and Daniel. I guess the old adage that you always look to those, you know, they they look at those closest to you rings true to some degree here. And in that way, you sort of can't blame them either. So when did they start questioning you about what happened? Tell me what you remember about when you started realizing, like, oh, shit, I think they might think I did this. They interviewed me and Daniel maybe, I don't remember, uh, right after. They let us go in the trailer to get things. And then I think that day or that next day, they called us up there. They read Daniel's his rights, but they never read mine. Robert Gorham talked to Daniel, and Jim talked to me. He told me that that they had a whole bunch of suspects, and then I'd ask him who, and he wouldn't tell me. And he asked where we'd been, and I told him where we'd been. And he said, did I have any receipts? And I showed him, and he, he took my receipt from where he bought that perfume, and I've never seen it since. They pulled hair out of my head, 10, 15, maybe 20 strands of my hair, and I asked, why are they doing that? And they said they had to. don't know why. It's this very day. Did it match anything? Did it not match anything? They cut her fingernails off because they said there was something under her fingernails. Did that match something? What, what was it? I've tried to find out, and no one's told me. On March 14th, Officers got a warrant to search Daniel's parents' home for evidence. And they find this insurance box. That, in my opinion, is when they came to form this theory that it was done for insurance. And I honestly believe that there's a strong probability that these officers conspired to testify that they were immediately looking for insurance papers. So that's why the insurance papers became so significant at trial. In addition to the box with the insurance papers, they seized a hunting jacket and some boots belonging to Daniel. The investigators also zeroed in on Daniel's rock and roll lifestyle. This is 1991. This is at the height of satanic panic era. It became a lot of the stuff of, of Daniel was this, you know, weird, aggressive guy that listened to all this heavy metal music, played heavy metal music, that kind of thing. And so I think that those things are what sort of got the police's focus on them to start with. They also scrutinized things like Nikki's rock posters and an Iron Maiden t-shirt of Daniel's, which to them seemed suspect. And in fact, some of that stuff was seized as evidence. It wasn't used at trial, but shows you where their minds were at as they were investigating. So they there was strong indication and even some comments made about this could be something to do with the occult. Ultimately, what the state decided on was that Daniel and Nikki murdered her mother for a $90,000 life insurance payout. About a month later, on April 18, 1991, Nikki and Daniel were both arrested and charged with first-degree murder. What were you thinking when that happened? I don't remember. I, I, I don't think I was thinking. Because who does that? Who who thinks that they would kill their mom? Who, who really thinks that they would kill their mom? I think that everybody was just putting out every, all kind of rumors. And I think a lot of them come from the sheriff's office. I do. So 
when they arrest you, when they actually put handcuffs on you and you wind up in the jail and you're waiting for trial, the only person you have now at this point is Daniel. And were you even able to talk to him? They were letting me talk to Daniel, but they were listening to everything that we said just in case I said something or he said something or, or they would take him outside and they wouldn't take me. They did a lot of horrible things to me in the county jail, trying to make me say that I did. And I keep telling them that if I'm not going to say that I did now, why would I say I'm doing it now? Because I haven't done anything wrong. I got sick with walking pneumonia. They told me they was going to take me to the hospital. And, and then they wouldn't take me, or they'd laugh at me, or they'd give me water with trash in it. I got food poisoning because the food was, was rotten that they gave me. They wouldn't take me outside. They would put people in there and tell me that I was going to die. They would make frying noises like they was going to find me in the electric chair. Then I couldn't sleep, couldn't eat. Sitting in jail awaiting trial, Nikki had nothing but time to think about her mother's life and what happened to her. First of all, I love my mom very dearly. Even as broken as she was, I would have never traded for nothing in the world. When you don't have anything, and you were raised up like me, with a dad that was so mean and hateful, and he's already destroyed one life, my mom's. And she was trying to put it all back together. And you have a child that was born with such a terrible disability, you know, she had to swallow her life because of mine, because she couldn't be what she ended up being and fix me, or at least try to where I could walk and have a decent life. And it's just very hard. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. In January of 1992, Daniel and Nikki went to trial. They were tried together, but with separate attorneys. The trial lasted just three days. The most damaging testimony for the prosecution came from Arkansas state criminologist Don Smith. He had done luminol testing on the camouflage hunting jacket and boots that had been taken from Daniel's home. 
I'm sure your listeners know, but you know, luminol is a chemical that it's an agent that reacts with blood, but it reacts with a bunch of other materials too. So if there's blood on something, you can spray luminol on it, put a black light over it and, and it will essentially glow, right? It doesn't tell you even if it's blood, number one. Number two, it doesn't tell you what species of animal the blood comes from, much less whose blood it is if it's human's blood. So the prosecutor really led him into this about the strong implication without outright saying during his testimony that the blood uh, that reacted to luminol on Daniel's shoe and jacket was Linda Hawley's blood. That was the clear implication given to the jury. In fact, Daniel has always maintained that the blood on his hunting jacket came from a deer. But against the expert criminologist's testimony, all but saying the blood was Linda's, it added up to a powerful argument for conviction. In fact, I've interviewed multiple jurors since then, and, and that's the first thing any of them ever brought up was the blood on the jacket. Because besides that, I mean, what other evidence was there against them? It was the the life insurance? The life insurance and, and the blood. I mean, that was it. That was truly it. The defense didn't seem to have much to present either, although they did try to introduce the possibility of alternate suspects. There was a, a man named Louis Burris. He, with regularity, would see people at Linda's home that that he thought were out of place. Let me put it that way. One of them was the same guy that he would see there very often. And he saw him there that Friday morning, saw him outside Linda's place on that Friday morning. According to Nikki, Linda was dating a police officer at the time, and he sometimes stayed overnight. Both Lewis Burris and Linda's neighbor, Carolee Davis, testified that they'd seen a police car parked in front of her house on a regular basis. He would come at late at night because she'd always say, if the car's in the front yard, please just don't stop and come back. And there'd be a lot of times his, his car would be in the yard at nighttime. Another set of people that Lewis Burris saw with regularity there were, as he described them, two black guys, the same black guys that were there almost every Saturday morning is what he said. And I only really bring that up because there was a similar crime that happened in a town just 30 miles away, just a few days before Linda Holly's murder, that was very similar. And the strongest suspects in that case were some African-American males. That was the case of a woman named Bernice Rankin. She was found murdered in her home, stabbed, bludgeoned. So very similar crime, similar enough to the point where a detective named Jimmy Morgan felt strongly that these two crimes were similar enough that he wanted real work done in comparing notes, comparing potential suspects, that kind of thing. In fact, Jimmy Morgan came to the trial. He was prepared to testify about the similarity between those two murders, but the prosecution objected. The jury left the room and, and, you know, there was a argument back and forth. Ultimately, the judge decided that he should not be allowed to testify in front of the jury. The other thing that the defense did bring up, Nikki was the primary beneficiary of that $90,000 life insurance upon her mother's death. The secondary beneficiary was a lady named Jan Terrell, who was Linda's friend. And Jan was one of the first people to go to the house on that Sunday morning, along with Kara Lee. And later, after Nikki was convicted, the $90,000 went to Jan Terrell. We don't know what she did with that money. We don't know anything like that, but we do know she was the beneficiary. So in addition to Nikki and Daniel, John believes there were several people in Linda's life that police could have looked into, but they didn't. She's a nurse for the county. There's strong rumor that she would take prescription pads that were pre-signed by doctors and fill prescriptions for people for money. That's not anything that we've ever been able to prove definitively, but there is very strong indication that that's the case. So, you know, that puts you around some shady people sometimes, especially in Southwest Arkansas in 1991. 
I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on who might have killed your mom? My mom um, didn't always know the best people in her life or didn't always sometimes pick the best people in her life like me. I guess that's where I got it from a lot. I didn't always pick the best people in the world either before Daniel, you know what I'm saying? But sometimes it was people that would drive real real slow by the house at night time or they would call the house. That's why we had to have her phone number changed. Who do you think that was? I mean, what kind of people did your mom know? Was she involved in anything? Well, she worked for the sheriff's department when she wasn't working for um, the health department. After I, after she passed away, I've had a few people tell me that, I guess the, just the people that you work with, you know what I'm saying? That she didn't necessarily hang with all the best people in the world, but I've never heard anybody's name. On January 13th, 1991, Nikki Zinger and Daniel Risher were both convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. When the realization came that I had a life sentence, it was just, I just quit. I stayed in the bed. I didn't go eat. I didn't shower. Because I I didn't know how I was going to do this. The first five years of, of my prison stay was really bad because I had to learn how to survive. And I learned that you couldn't be who you are. You don't be nice to everybody. You can't give your shoulder or try to say, you know, can I be here, you know, do you need somebody to talk to? Because I've learned that they would stab people in the back. I didn't think I would ever survive as long as I have because of the horrible things that I've seen. The people get beat up or stabbed or cut. And it just breaks my heart because I wasn't raised up that way. But Nikki turned out to be stronger than she ever knew. She did survive, and even earned her GED while in prison. And eventually, she found herself becoming a mentor, helping others to adjust the way she wished someone could have helped her. When I first came to prison, I didn't have anybody that was there for me. Nobody to tell me that it was okay, the pat on the back, or uh, I'm very proud of you that, that you survived another day. I try to be there and listen to them. I've helped many, and I do it for the for the simple mind that if we all need peace of mind, because there's none in here. And when we get something, we have to hold it very dear. Through the years, Nikki has tried to keep up on how Daniel's doing. I would ask Rachel, was he okay? Because I wasn't okay. You know, I used to hear from uh, Rachel all the time about Daniel. In 1993, Nikki and Daniel filed an appeal with the Arkansas Supreme Court requesting a new trial. But the court upheld the conviction. Daniel and his family continued to pursue every avenue they could to prove their innocence. Which is how John Harden learned about Nikki's case in 2016. So when we first launched Proclaim Justice, I got a message from the cousin of Daniel Risher. And she asked us to look into it. And so I started looking into it really on Daniel's behalf. And that's what got me into the case to start with. But of course, you can't investigate Daniel's case without investigating Nikki's. Daniel had already gotten the Innocence Project of New York involved. And they had agreed to have DNA testing done on the blood found on his jacket. The test results showed that it was not definitively human blood. And it's what Daniel was saying all along. It's my deer hunting jacket. It's deer blood. And there's something else that John keeps thinking about. The lack of a motive. When she was killed, remember, Linda was still battling cancer. She had gone into remission and then the cancer had come back. There was strong belief and indication that this could very well be terminal cancer this time around. And so if we're talking about the the motive to murder her mother to get $90,000 of life insurance money 
And this sounds crass, but if you want your mother dead to collect $90,000 and she's got almost certainly terminal cancer, why not just wait it out and not take a risk of being convicted and sent away for life? So it's just illogical on its face. In 2016, based on the new DNA findings, Daniel and Nikki were granted a parole hearing. The parole board unanimously recommended them for parole, which does not happen very often at all. No. And then they get denied by the governor. That's right. Governor Asa Hutchison denied parole. Yeah. Proclaim Justice was started by John Hardin and Jason Baldwin, one of the infamous West Memphis Three. John was a pivotal member in helping to exonerate the three wrongfully convicted men after 18 years in prison. After Jason's release in 2011, the two decided to start an innocence organization together. They have worked on many wrongful conviction cases. One of the most well-known was their work exonerating Daniel Villegas. But after years of running a nonprofit, the pace was taking its toll on John. In 2023, he made the difficult decision to disband Proclaim Justice. It was just time. I mean, it, it's fucking hard starting an organization and keeping, you know, a several hundred thousand dollar budget together every year. And I'm still active in the investigations in our current cases. Um, I'll be able to keep some of my fundraising network in place to do this kind of good work. And he has no intention on giving up on Nikki's case. I promised Nikki when I called her and explained what was going on with me and proclaimed justice. She was very supportive of, of me on a personal level just because she's sweet like that. She's kind and caring and compassionate and, and she wants to make sure I'm okay, which is always strange to hear from somebody who's dealing with what she's dealing with on the inside. You know, you and I talk about that, John. Like anytime Nikki calls, it's like, are you okay? Is her first question. Absolutely. How are you doing? And so I know to some degree she's mostly it's because she truly cares about me. To some degree, it probably helps her just be thinking about somebody else's life. So she's absolutely 100% completely innocent of this crime. And we just can't rest until we've got her out. Where we're at is we have to have a status hearing. We have this order for all these items to be tested, DNA tested. We can't really proceed in the courts until we have a decision on whether or not we can forego testing on all those other ones. So now we're, we're left with waiting on a, on a judge's order telling us what we've got to do. Nikki has been behind bars since she was 28. She's now 60. Her health has never been great, but she admits that as she gets older, things are getting even harder. I have diabetes real bad. I have high blood pressure. My headaches are worse from the stress. I can't remember when the last time I felt good. Yeah. And it gets really depressing sometimes. And I try not to cry because I don't want anybody, oh, oh, boo-hoo, poor baby thing. What do you want for your future when you get out? What do you think about? I don't want a perfect life because there's no such thing as perfect. I just want to learn to be okay with me all over again. Learn to be okay with the world because I don't even know what the world looks like. I don't, the world is so big now. I don't know, maybe travel. Maybe tell my story, write a book. I just want people to get a chance to know who I am, to like who I am. I want people to know that I'm capable of doing things more than that I've ever thought about. I don't even know what's out there to do exactly, but I just want people to know that I want to have that chance to do it. I got to know Nikki really well while covering her case for Unjust and Unsolved. And after learning about her case and her life, and speaking with her at length, I felt compelled to be a friend to Nikki rather than just a journalist using her as a source. What gives you hope, Nikki? You, Maggie. <laughs> Why did I know you were going to say that? You've heard me get this bad before, and you get over to me and tell me that 
you have all these people out here. Just because you don't see them doesn't mean they're not there. Even the people in here, though, will tell me that. It's okay, Nikki. I wouldn't say I'm the best person. I would say I've learned to be the, the better person than I was before. My heart always soars, you know? Since Proclaim Justice has closed its doors, Nikki is in need of a new team to pick up where they left off. Please reach out if you can help or can connect her with someone who can. It's been over 30 years now, and it is time to get her out. In the meantime, Nikki would love to have your support. A donation to help with prison expenses or even just a letter or card to let her know you've heard her story would mean the world to her. There is also a fundraiser for Nikki since she doesn't have family or friends to put money on her commissary. It's up to us. So we will put that link and how to write her in the episode description. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in the episode description to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom, Jeff Kempler, and Kevin Wordis, as well as senior producer Annie Chelsea, producer Kathleen Fink, story editor Hannah Beal, and researcher Shelby Sorrells. Mixing and sound design are by Jackie Pauly, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on all social media platforms at Lava for Good and at Wrongful Conviction. You can also follow me on all platforms at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.